Good morning. Woo. There you go. I'm going to be counting on it. Oh, man. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I woke up this morning pretty pretty uh, tired because uh, usually before I, I'm, I'm going to speak, uh, whether it's here or somewhere else, it's uh, I, I don't sleep very well the night before because it's like, I really don't want to screw this up because it's like, this is the word of God. And there's, yeah, right, right? This is like, there's reverence behind it. It's like, I don't want to misuse the word of God. I don't want to say something that's going to come off misleading. And this one was especially tough because when I had messaged Josh, I had no plan of speaking on this. I was like, hey, you know, I saw this in Noah. You should check it out. Like, just basically, usually when the Lord shows me something, I want to tell everybody about it just because it's like, you, you got to hear about this, you know? Like, I can't contain it. Uh, and he's like, all right, well, you want to talk about Noah? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so, I'm not going to lie, this was probably the most difficult preparation for a message I have ever went through in my life, like by far, because there were so many different things to do with Noah. Noah is a very in-depth, very beautiful story, and there's so, so, so much in it. I thought about talking about, you know, the sons of God and the Nephilim and talking about some stuff with the Midrush, but then I realized, you know what, that's probably a little bit too heady for a Sunday morning. Uh, and most people, you know, it's Sunday morning, so they're still, you know, like trying to wake up. Um, thought about talking about its parallels with other tales and stuff like the Epic of Gilgamesh and talking about how truth uh, doesn't necessarily have to be some factual thing as in like this is a historical event, but truth can also be expressed in metaphors and poems. And I was like, you know what? Wasn't feeling that either. Then I talked about, or I thought about doing what Josh talked about last week, how at the end of the story of Noah, it was like, be fruitful and multiply. I'm like, okay, let's talk about that. As the preparation began, the Lord's like, nah, bro, that ain't gonna work. Uh, then I was like, you know what, Lord? Okay, one more, you know, uh, let's try you know, there's a, a, a comparison between Noah, Lot, and Abraham. You have Noah, who when God told him he was going to destroy the earth, and was like, cool, put himself and his family on a boat, everything happened. Then you have Lot, who was so assimilated with the people that he didn't even have the ears to hear that something was coming. And so he had to basically be drug out. And then you have Abraham, who was willing to engage with God and, and, and stand in the gap. And I was going to talk about that. And God's like, that's not going to work either. So the conclusion I came to was like, let's just go through the story of Noah and read it as someone who was in that particular time, the Eastern culture, read it as they would and get the same things they would. And I think that, that a lot of times when we read the Old Testament and we read the Bible, we like to look at it through our Western scope, which looks at everything on the surface level. And, and we're like, okay, well, we, let's ask this question and this question and this question. Like, for example, we'll ask questions like, when exactly did God create the earth? Who cares? Because the reality is, is Genesis 1 and 2 is not about when God created the heavens and the earth. It's so much deeper. We ask the question, you know, did God create the world in six 24-hour days? Who cares? That's, that's not the point. We ask, did Moses write the Torah? Doesn't matter. We ask questions like, were there actually 5,000 people when Jesus fed the 5,000? It's like, bro, you missed the point. We ask, when Jesus said, forgive seven times seven, does that mean after 490 times I can stop forgiving? Jesus would, he, he would I'm sure if, if he heard some people that made that argument today, he'd laugh at them. Um, we ask questions, what does Satan look like? Who cares? Especially as Christians. <laughs> we ask, what, what is hell like? I'm not going. I don't care. We ask, what do angels look like? Uh, speaking of angels, I think the funniest thing on earth is whenever you see, like, it shows, like, 
arts and crafts, and it shows a kid who had a biblically accurate view of an angel, and it's like this monster with eyes all over its wings. I think that's the funniest thing ever. Nobody else, that's okay. Um, this, this may sound a little bit more familiar. We ask questions like, this is going to make people uncomfortable, and I'm excited. It says, we ask, did God predestine or pre-wire people who would or would not accept him, or did we make this decision out of our free will? Doesn't matter. The fact is, is we, we came to know Christ. And, and whether there was some pre-wire, like, anyways, I'm not going to go into that. I have so much notes, I have to go quick. We ask questions like, this is going to sound theological, but pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Do we baptize infants or do we baptize post-salvation? We argue over silly things. Anyways, and then we ask, you know, where did Jesus stop to use the restroom between places that he went? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. We, we totally don't ask. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> but no, a lot of times the Eastern perspective, like we go to the Bible and say it's either this or this, and the Eastern perspective will step in and say it's neither of those. And, you know, that's just not, the Bible was not written by people in the West. It was written by people in the East who had different mindsets. So I want to read a quote. If you've talked to me for five minutes, you've probably heard me quote the Bema podcast, shout out. Um, I'm going to quote something that Marty Solomon said on there about the Bible. I think it's beautiful. He says, rich images and stories fill the pages of our Bible, but they come from a time and culture very different from our own. The writers of the Bible are Hebrew or Eastern, and they write to Eastern audiences. Most Christians in our culture are Greek or Western, who think about the world in a much different way than the people of the Bible. As a result, much of the Bible is lost in our culture and lost even more as we try to explain it through a Western lens. If we learn to think Hebrew and think Eastern, then the text will begin to come alive. So I want to give you some examples because I want to do two things with this message today. I, one, want to teach you how to pop- properly read the Bible and see it the way that the original audience saw it. But at the same time, we're going to use the story of Noah as an example and also learn from the story of Noah. So I'm going to move really, really fast because I have about two hours worth of notes and I'm going to try to squeeze in in, in a few minutes. So if I move too fast, you may have to go back and listen to it again, um, but I apologize in advance. All right, so let's look at God's existence. The Western mind says God isn't real until we prove that he is. The Eastern mind says God is real until, he's proven that, or until it's proven that he isn't. We ask the question of what or who is God in the sense of like, you know, what is he like? What, what does he look like? What are his attributes? And the Eastern perspective says, how is God? And more of a relational aspect, like how does God do this? How does God want to involve me in this? When it comes to faith, to, to the Western mind, faith is into intellectual. We use creeds, doctrines, belief statements, and we use proof text to support the belief. The Eastern perspective says faith is relational and it's based on experiences of and with God and has no attempt or need to rationalize it. When it comes to truth, to the Western mind, truth is rational and scientific. To the Eastern, it's religious or, experiment, or experiential. How does truth unfold? Western culture, truth is static and unchanging. To the Easterner, truth is unfolding. When it comes to how we express truth, we express truth in the Western culture through words, ideas, and definitions by using outlines, lists, bullet points, etc. The Eastern culture uses word pictures and stories through poetry, imagery, and symbolism. We'll get into more of that here in a moment. When When it comes to how life works, the Western culture looks at Uh, What can I benefit from individually? Whereas the Eastern mind says, how can we benefit from what's going on? 
when it comes to heaven and hell. Western culture says these are separate locations that we go after our earthly life is over. The Eastern mind says lifestyle, that heaven and hell is a lifestyle and culture that starts and happens in the here and now. When it comes to eternal life, I promise this is coming to an end. I'm just trying to give plenty of examples so that we have the right scope going into it. When it comes to the idea of eternal life, the Western idea says it's detached from this world and begins when we die, which is more of a quantitative thing. I'm going to live forever. The Eastern says that eternal life begins in this world while we are alive, and it is a qualitative state. Eternal life is a quality of life, not just a time frame of how long we live. Now, numbers. This one, we're going to talk about this one for a while because this one is so much fun. I'm, I am a Bible nerd at heart. Like, I'm the kind of person that when I'm, when I'm at home and I've got nothing to do, I'm like listening to podcasts and intellectual stuff on the Bible, and I'm a big nerd. But anyways, uh, through the Western mind, numbers are quantitative. We think of, you know, how many. And then the Eastern mind, they're qualitative. If we're not reading the Bible the same way as the audience would have, then we miss out on so much depth that's found within the text because the text uses everything I said in this that's Eastern. They use that, and our Western mind clouds that a lot of times, and we come to conclusions about God and about the Bible that was never intended in the Bible. Now, to get into the story of Noah, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 6. Uh, Noah is one of, if not the most controversial story in the Old Testament, I believe, to a lot of people. Because in the Western idea, it's like, how did the story of Noah happen? Where can we find remnants of the flood? It's always like this, did it factually happen? Whereas the Eastern mind's like, what can we learn from this story? And they don't care if it actually happened or not. And that's what makes people uncomfortable. So everybody who grew up thinking, I'm not saying the story of Noah didn't happen. Please don't mishear me. But I'm saying that if, if you're asking questions about, it's like if you go to a parable of Jesus and he's talking about the prodigal son and you start asking questions of what did the prodigal son look like physically? You've missed the point. That's not at all what Jesus was trying to do. And that's the same way I believe that Noah is, is in, this, in this story. If Noah isn't a historical account, then what is it? Well, I believe that Noah is a symbol of what true relationship with God looks like and how to properly partner with God. On top of that, it talks about trials and testing in a way that's very relatable if we are willing to look past the face value details and see the hidden treasures buried in the narrative. All right, now we're going to start with the text. That was the introduction. My hands are sweaty. Knees weak, arms spaghetti. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Anyways, all right, right, back in, back in. All right, we're going to start in verse 5. If we read the first four verses about the giants and, the Nephilim and all that stuff, people are going to immediately fall off because that stuff is a whole different topic. All right, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. I'm using the NIV, by the way. Uh, this is a direct opposite of Genesis 131 when it says that God looked at creation and saw that it was very good. At this point, God had looked at creation and saw that it was the opposite of good. Not because that God saw mankind as evil, but because the inclinations of their heart was evil. That's very important because if you look at this and say God's, because I was, I was around a lot of circles where it's like God saw human beings and saw them as trash and saw them as evil when it wasn't their image that was evil. It was what was underneath in their heart that was evil because they had evil desires. Okay, so that's very important. Verse 6. 
The Lord regretted that he had made the human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. I want to stop for a second, because and, and, I know the first th- question I have when reading this is, did God make a mistake? He says that I reg- the Lord regretted that he had made human beings. Regret here does not mean that he, that he saw it and was like, man, mess this up. Maybe we try it again. No, it was a, it was a, a sense of mourning because God was looking at creation and he was mourning. The, the word that's used in Hebrew is nakam, which means to show grief, sorrow, or sadness. It has nothing to do with like saying, oh my goodness, I made a mistake. Uh, I got to fix this. And so another way to read it would be the Lord mourned that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Just wanted to make that uh, plain. All right, verse eight. This is my favorite part of the whole story. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We read this in passing all the time. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Next, it's like, whoa. Like God's, God, God was going to destroy the entire earth and then Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I, I think in, in the Eastern mind, it would say when all hope seems to be lost, there's always a remnant. That's how they would look at that. It's like, you know what? There was nobody good, but God found favor. Or I'm sorry, Noah found favor in God's eyes. And this is true for us. This is the beautiful thing. It's like, this is, this is our story. We found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When the Lord could have, which depends on how you, it's deeper than that, but the Lord could have allowed us to be lost in our sin and to, and to die and be separated from him forever. But we found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I think that that is amazing. Let's look at John 1.16, because I, I feel like we're not convinced. Out of the fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. The ESV says, for from the, his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I love this. Because gra- the definition of grace, and I'm, I don't like this definition, but the definition that's on pretty much everything I could find is it's unmerited favor. And I think what this verse is doing is it, when it says grace upon grace, it's saying that in our sin, we were uh, unmerited or unqualified for God's grace. But God put grace upon grace. So he showed grace to make us worthy to receive grace. Which is, it's like, when anytime, and this is a big pet peeve I have with the whole total depravity thing that says that mankind is worthless. It's like, no, God gave us the grace to be made worthy in his eyes to receive the grace that Christ gives us. And that's what it's saying here in Noah. It's like, Noah, did, I mean, we don't have any other reason as to why God chose Noah. I mean, it says something in the next verse, but before this, we had no idea what really happened. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I feel like that's our story. And that's my story. It's like, man, God could have totally left me out to dry, but I found favor. And, I, and it's, it's just, if we can wrap our mind around that, we would never look in the mirror and see something other than amazing and other than I am favorable in God's eyes. And that's what I talked, I mean, whenever I talked about love, that's a big, big, big point is you have to see yourself the way God sees you or everything else that you read in scripture or that you do in ministry is going to be through the filter of I am worthless. I didn't deserve this when God's not saying that at all. He's like, you do deserve it because I've given you grace that allowed you to receive the grace. Mm, That's so good. All right, moving on. Verse nine, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with the Lord. 
This, this is literally the story of salvation, by the way. We have Noah found favor, and then we have Noah walking in righteousness. This is the first place in the entire Bible where imputed righteousness happened after the, the fall. Western Christianity has the, this unbiblical belief that righteousness um, is and was only attainable by people after Jesus because of sin. However, the imputation of righteousness and cleansing of sin are two separate things. The imputation of righteousness comes from when you have faith. Faith alone doesn't grant righteousness. God's grace to give righteousness because of faith is what grants righteousness. So a good way to explain this is in Ephesians 2 way. It says, for by grace we have been saved through faith. So faith is, is, the, is the, the tool that is used to receive God's grace. And so that, this is the first place where that's used. So I think it's really cool how we have a picture of salvation even as far back as the Old Testament. And people say the Old Testament is out of date and we're not supposed to use it anymore. Okay. All right, moving on. <laughs> now we're going to get into some numbers, okay? This is where it's going to get kind of heady, okay? So you got to follow along with me. And, and some people are going to call me a heretic after this, and that's okay. Because I know where I stand. I have favor in the eyes of the Lord. Hmm. Um, so with numbers, as I mentioned before, numbers are very qualitative. So when they hear a lot of these numbers in the details... They're not thinking, oh, well, the ark was this big and it, you know, it was probably this tall. Let's, let's build it and see what it looked like. They're like, no, this is so much deeper. So we're going to jump down to verse 15. Again, I'm sorry if I'm moving too fast. I just don't have a lot of time. I have a lot of notes, so I'm trying to move quickly. Verse 15, this is how you are to build it, talking about the ark. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. So 300, it's three 100s. 100 is the number of totality or fullness, and three is the number of harmony, completeness. Sometimes it could be the Trinity as well. And then you have the number five and 10, which, you know, talked about 50. Five is the number of grace. 10 is the number of authority, government, obedience, or responsibility. And then you have 30, which is three tens. 30 is, uh, three is the number of harmony, completeness, which we talked about a second ago. And then 10, obviously, authority, government, or obedience. So the way that they would have heard this, and this is where people may call me a heretic because it's going to sound like I'm changing the Bible, but this is how they would have interpreted this. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be in total harmony from front to back, full of grace and authority from side to side, and stand from top to bottom in complete obedience. I love that. Verse 16, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. One is the number of God's supremacy, singleness, unique, and universal power. So here's how they would have read it. I love this so much. All across the top, leave an opening for my supremacy, for without me you are left enclosed alone. And they say, this is just a historical account. Okay. Jump down to verse 18. Oh, I love this verse too. This is, we're getting away from the numbers just for a second because I don't want to skip this verse. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter my ark. You and your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you. Notice it says, but I will establish my covenant with you. It doesn't say, Noah, I've given you a covenant. Now you got to do all the work. God says, I am going to be the one to do it. 
By the way, the name Noah, you know what Noah means? Noah means one who rests. And so to get to this place of rest, you have to be willing to say, you know what, God, if you've given the covenant, you are going to have to be the one to see it through because I can't do it on my own. And that's what God is promising him is that I am going to establish my covenant with you. The only place that you can get to that posture-wise is in rest. If you have your hands on it and say, God, okay, like, I know that you want this, but like, let me just hold on to the corner a little bit. You know, there's some things, some details that I know a little bit that you probably don't know about. You know, let me just hold on to this. And God's like, no, like, I will establish it. Hand it to me and rest. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Verse 19, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two is the number of unity. Sometimes it can be division if you're talking about God created Adam and split into two. But contextually, two is most of the time about unity. So they would have read this like, fill your boat with every form of unity. Let's jump down to verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So I, 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 have, I have something that I, that this is, this is where I struggle, okay? Whenever the Lord tells me something and whenever the Lord presents something to me and I'm operating in obedience, I tend to be a kind of person, I think a lot of us are this way, but I tend to be the kind of person where it's like, I want to go above and beyond and do what God said and then some to try to like make God more proud and, or maybe like even try to push ahead and do something extra. But I think this is a great example of not just that Noah did you know, more than, like Noah didn't do less than what God had asked, but Noah also didn't do more than God had asked. Because doing more is just as much of a problem as doing less. And a good example of this is the story of, of, of Saul in 1 Samuel. I'm, go, I'm not going to read it because it's too long. But God tells Samuel to go into the land and destroy everything. The, the women, the children, we're not going to go into the, the details, but destroy everything. And Saul was like, you know what, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to also save all the animals and sacrifice them for the Lord. And what ends up happening? Saul becomes unqualified to lead the people because he was willing to go above and beyond and give a sacrifice to God. But in doing so, he was disobeying God. So sometimes we do a little bit more than what God had asked. And what ends up happening is, even though we're doing it in a place of worship, we're also doing it in a place of disobedience, which is just as much of a problem as doing it at all, or not doing it at all. Let's continue. Let's go to, let's go to chapter 7. Starting in verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Verse 4, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth, and forty day, for forty days and forty nights I will wipe from the face of the earth every living thing I have made. And Noah did all that God commanded him. So, back to the numbers. Seven is the number of perfection, completeness, or Sabbath rest. Forty is the number of trials or testing. 
Uh, one can mean God's supremacy and singleness. Sometimes one's one of those really funny ones where it can be, depending on its context, many different things. Sometimes one can be in comparison to something else. So if I said, you know, one out of every 1,000, or like this has one of this and this has a 1,000 of this, it's like me saying this is way more important than this. Uh, and I believe that's the context here. So they would have read this part with all those numbers and various clauses as bring everything on your boat that is clean and uplifting so that it may reproduce throughout the earth. Bring also that which is unclean so that it may be dealt with. When you have finished working and begin resting, the rain will begin to fall. That rain may include trials and testing, but your obedience and devotion to me will allow you to persevere. Again, we're, we're, we're going away from our Western mind and saying that, you know, 40 days, 40 nights, 7. And they're looking at this through a whole different lens. And, and we're so clouded by it because we try to break down and exegete the scripture and try to come to conclusions about all these details. And it's like, bro, like you've missed the whole point of this. So much deeper. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. 600 is the number, oh, I love this so much. 600 is the number of, uh, the cosmic number of conjunction and internal fruitfulness. So they would have read this, Noah was internally fruitful when God sent the rain and brought about the testing of Noah's faith. Let's jump down to verse 15. I know we're moving fast. I promise we're gonna tie this all together in the end. Verse 15, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. So another way of reading that is everything that God breathed into entered Noah's boat. I wonder how many of us, we, we, we bring as much, like, it's kind of like with, with a fire. Whenever you're, if your house is burning down, it's like, I'm going to go grab all of my, you know, we don't have CDs today. Um, I'm going to grab, what do, we, what, do we, what do people use today? Uh, I'm going to grab all of my, I'm going to grab my Yeezys. I'm going to grab my, all of my shoes. And, and it's like, bro, like, like, let it go. Like, you know, only bring with you, you know. Only bring things that, you know, are, are worth, like bring your kids, like they're important, you know? <laughs> Listen, some people would sacrifice, never mind. Um, <laughs> moving on. Verse 16. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. So to tie this all together, here's how they would have, would have read that, including that last part. You have been faithful by bringing you and your family into this boat that is full of grace, authority, and obedience. You have made me a home at the top of your boat. Because of this, I will shut you in so that even when the floodwaters come, even when your boat sways and rocks, even when it seems like your boat won't make it, the door will remain shut and you will be secure by my hand. When you try to do things without God, you are left to attempt to shut yourself in, but what ends up happening is the floodwaters end up destroying your boat. And a lot of us, that's where we are, is like, like we've been waiting and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and then trying our best to like close this boat. It's like, I think I got everything I need without actually waiting for the Lord to shut us in, which is actually what's gonna keep our boat afloat. Let he who has an ear hear. Verse 20, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. This is actually what I sent Josh that spread on the whole thing. In Hebrew, it doesn't actually say 15. It rather says five and 10 cubits. So again, five is the number of grace. 
10 is the number of authority, government, obedience, and responsibility. So they would have read that, Eastern-wise, uh, as God's grace and Noah's obedience was so deep that Noah's boat, which was himself, his family, and his legacy, rode on the waves of their testing even above the highest mountains in front of them. Some people still aren't getting it. Let's move on. Verse 24. I'm telling you, if, once, you once you grasp this, it's like, poof. all right. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. 100 is a number, again, of totality and fullness. 50 can sometimes mean the number of jubilee, which it also can break it up by 5 and 10, but it actually uses the word 50 in Hebrew. So they would have interpreted it as, the testing came to an end and there was the fullness of jubilee. All right, chapter 8. I, prom- I promise this is all going to get t- tied together. I know it seems like I'm moving fast. I'm even telling myself internally, like, slow down, but it's all going to be tied in, I promise. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Pause. Did God forget Noah? <laughs> what? You know, that's immediately the thing I thought first is like, after the flood was over, God was like, all right, the earth. Is- oh, Noah! <laughs> You know, bro, I'm sorry. Like, oh my goodness, I forgot. <laughs> but that's not, that's not what's happening here, obviously. This is more of a remembrance of like, I told you something and you come to me and, and say, you know, hey, I'm like, oh, hey, don't forget. I, I, remember, your, I remember what I told you. Like, I'm gonna do this. It's a constant remembrance. It's not a, I forgot you. So now I remember you. Okay, so let's make that clear before we go any further. All right. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Uh, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling. Now we're going to see as we continue to go through this, this here that the water is going to begin to recede. And so I think this is very prophetic for a lot of us is that sometimes when the rain stops in our life, we immediately are like, all right, kick the, boat, kick the door down. All right, I'm ready to go. And what ends up happening is you jump out of your boat to then land into the floodwaters and still drown. A lot of times we, when we stop seeing rain, we quit to jump out. And what ends up happening is we drown. And sometimes that's when the testing truly begins is when the rain has stopped falling and the floodwaters are beginning to recede. That's, oh my goodness, that's for me, is, is a lot of times whenever I, I see the storm is over, the effects of what the storm brought is still there. And I'm like, God, like, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. And God's like, no, we got to let these waters dry up before we jump out and start to try and recreate humanity. Because if you jump out now, you're not a fish. Know what? You're going to drown. Let's go to verse 3. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ariat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountain became visible. So I've, already, I've went through these numbers so many times, I think we kind of have a picture of, the, of what they are. But the, the name for Ariat can also mean sacred land or a high mountain. Um, but in verse 4, it says, on the 17th day of the seventh month. There's a lot of sevens. And I believe that this is a a strong push for Sabbath, a strong push for rest. 
but here's how they would have how they would have read this um, all together. The day God's perfect authority collided with Noah's continual rest, the boat itself came to rest on the highest mountain. The waters continued to recede until God's supreme power established Noah's newfound authority on the earth. This new authority exposed the tops of the mountains previously hidden by the flood waters. Telling you, we're going somewhere with this. I, I love this. I love this. There are so many, oh, I, I still don't understand how we read this through a historical lens because it's like you're missing all of these layers. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to read this quickly. We're going to read verses 6 through 12, and then we'll have one more passage, and then we'll be done reading, okay? All right, listen to the details here. We're going to be done with the numbers for now. We're going to move on to a different detail in this because I think we kind of have the idea of the numbers down. After 40 days, Noah opened up a window he had made in the ark, and he sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in its beak a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the flood waters had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. Now, ravens. Me and uh, Mary talked about this on Tuesday. Ravens are the number of, or not number, what am I saying? Four hours of sleep, here we go. All right, ravens represent God's gracious provision. Notice it never said the dove came back. The dove went back and forth throughout, on top of, like above the boat until the waters completely receded. Now, dove, in their mind, like they didn't really, I mean, they had a concept of God and the Holy Spirit, but not like we do in the, in the New Covenant. The dove would more represent love to them or God himself. Um, and then an olive branch represents peace. So here's how they would have read this. Ah, I love this so much. When the time of testing and suffering came to a close, Noah trusted in the provision of God to keep him alive as the effects of this testing began to subside. The one who loves, or God himself, served as a voice of truth to Noah to know whether it is safe to move on from the current season of testing or not. Eventually, the one who loves, or God, spoke assurance of peace from this suffering and commissioned Noah to walk headstrong out of the place of suffering. This is so much deeper. All right, let's go to to chapter 9, and then we're going to read these first three verses, and I promise we'll be done reading uh, the scripture, which if you're upset that we're reading the scripture, you probably shouldn't be at church. But anyways, let he who has an ear hear. (laughs) Right, Brandon. (laughs) All right, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact same thing that God told Adam when he created him. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. That is verbatim what was said. This is also the same thing that happens with Jesus when he commissions the disciples. As he says, it doesn't necessarily say be fruitful, multiply, and increase in number, but he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Ergo, be fruitful, multiply, and increase in number. 
Verse 2, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all flesh, I'm sorry, flesh, fish in the sea, not flesh in the sea, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Listen to this. I love this part. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. Through the deepest testing of his faith, speaking metaphorical here, because again, this is much deeper than just a historical event, but in the play, like when he was going through his toughest time, when we're going through our toughest time, when you are faithful to the end, God then commissions you, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, and you receive as your inheritance, as Josh was mentioning earlier, everything that had been lost is now being returned to you. I now give you everything. Because of the faithfulness of Noah, the grace of Yahweh, and the grace of Yahweh, God gives Noah everything. This story is not just a, a story that's a, let me read that again, I'm sorry, tongue-tied. This story is not just a story of destruction of evil, nor is it just a story of a flood that may or may not have happened, literally. This story is a picture of what enduring trials and testing looks like. So to the Israelites, they would have, looked, they would have received this in the desert. They had just went out of Egypt, and they're now in a place that is the most harsh environment. It is hot. It, I mean, I'm, the temperatures there are around 100 to 110 degrees consistently. So imagine being there for 40 years, 40 years. And this is, a, this is how they would have taken it. They would have heard this story in that place and say, you know what? God is bringing me through this and God is going to see me through to the end. And, and whenever this, when this promised land comes to us, we're gonna be in a place where we can receive it and we will receive everything that's in front of us because we endure to the end. To us, this can also be applied to the storms that we face in life. COVID-19, 2020, it was a tough year. And a lot of us may look at that year and say, man, like the flood was all over the earth, metaphorically speaking. And we may have felt like we lost everything. But that suffering and that testing, I believe it's already happening now, is starting to come to an end. So I want to say, um, I want to read this is uh, something that I wrote that sums up the whole story, and then we're going to bring this whole thing down, because I do want to leave some space for us uh, for prayer. So actually, are you going to play keys? or, or Okay. Um, so I want to leave some space here for us to, to spend time with God, because I think this is something big that we need to uh, catch on. So here's how we're going to tie everything together, okay? I promise, I know we move fast, um, but, but this is going to tie it together. So the people of God are called to be Noah, that is, ones who rest. Storms in life are inevitable. Some storms come from mistakes that we make. Some come from God himself trying to abolish things in us that go against the story he's trying to tell. God has commissioned us to build a boat that is in total harmony and unity from front to back, full of grace and authority from side to side, stand from top to bottom, with complete obedience and have room at the top for God to rest so that his supreme power may be at work in the midst of our toughest storms. When the boat is established, 
the Lord himself will shut us inside and our boat will ride on the waves of the floodwaters. Having a boat doesn't make the storm easy to endure, but it does prevent you from drowning. When the rain ceases to fall, wait for the call of God before stepping out of the boat so that the effects of the rain may dry up and then be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God is looking for partners in his story who will simply be obedient and rest. Those are my notes. But this, this story is, is a beautiful, beautiful picture of what true relationship with God should look like. A lot of times we, we get saved and we immediately go to how much Bible do I have to read every day? How much, like, do I have to go to Sunday, you know, church on Sunday? I got to make sure to check this box and this box and this box and this box. And we end up building this, I would even say origami. We build a paper boat and we're like, when the storms come, this will work. And what happens is everything that you yourself built when the storm comes, shatters the boat, destroys the boat. And sometimes that's God blessing you, by the way. Maybe that's what COVID was. Maybe that's what 2020 was, was God's destroying your boat. And then there's the other boat that God himself commissions you to build that is full of grace, full of obedience, full of authority, full of identity, with God himself resting at the tip top of the boat. That's the boat that endures. That's the boat when suffering comes, when floodwaters come, will stand the test of time. Maybe some of us, we're in the middle. We build front to back. We got that down. It looks good. And then like on the sides where the door's at, we make that out of paper. We make the top, you know, out of paper. Then maybe another part. Oh yeah, that part's gonna be good. And, and we, we kind of straddle the fence. But what ends up happening? When the floodwaters come, it still shatters the boat because the boat is not complete in what God was trying to establish. And this is, again, this is all out of a place of rest. This is not in a place of striving. The moment that you start to say, I'm gonna try to do this myself, I'm gonna try to put my hands on it, that's when your boat is gonna start to crumble. But the moment that you say, you know what, God? The only thing I know is what you've told me. The only thing I know is that you have given me everything I need and I trust your story. That's what the Bible itself is about, is trusting the story of God in rest. From front to back, every story, the things that go wrong in the Bible happen because someone stepped in and said, I'm gonna do things myself. Every single time, that's where things fell apart. But when things ended up working out for the good, what was happening? People were worshiping God and trusting God in rest. Every single time. Adam and Eve in the garden. I trust God in rest. I don't have to worry about leaving this garden. What did Eve do? There may be something out there that, that God doesn't want me to have. So I'm gonna put my hands on something that God didn't say touch. And I'm gonna consume something I know I'm not supposed to do or eat. And then it ends up being their destruction. Cain and Abel, you have, they go before God, they give him an offering. God accepts Abel, doesn't accept Cain. I believe that was on purpose to teach Cain this lesson of rest and say, listen, trust in me. But what happened? Cain trusted in his own works and his own ability to please God and said, I'm gonna choose to be angry, choose to be downcast, and I'm gonna kill my brother. And maybe then God will see me as worthy of his presence. And if you read the context, God never says that he left that before he killed Abel. 
Cain was just, like, God was trying to talk Cain out of it. He's like, listen, why are you downcast? Why are you angry? God saw Cain the same way he saw Abel. The offering, different story. But God saw Cain the same way he saw Abel. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, God saw Cain the same way he saw Abel. But Cain chose to trust in his own works. Abel trusted in the works of God. And Cain ended up falling. In the story of Noah, one who rests. Noah trusting God does just as God commanded him. Nothing more and nothing less. Builds his boat, it survives. Would have been a different ending if he had said, okay, God, like I see that, but I know this, this, may, this kind of wood may not work. I think this kind of wood would be better for my boat. Maybe we should put a couple columns here just to make sure it supports it. And I believe that if he had done that, the boat still would have crumbled. You know, I heard C.S. Lewis say something one time um, in, in a similar regard. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but talking about how God is the great iconoclast, which means that he shatters something to replace it with something else. And I think a lot of times what happens is we come to God with our paper boats, our origami, and God comes through and shatters it. And, and we're like, oh my goodness, this was awful. I hate it. And God's like, no, I wasn't just destroying you, but I was replacing what you thought you needed with what I say you do need, which is what actually is better than what you thought you needed. I mean, this is, this is the Bible, one who rests. And, that, and this is the story of creation. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't tell them to do anything else but rest. They walked with God in the cool of the day. This is what eternity is gonna look like, by the way, is rest. And some of us don't like that. But we are gonna walk with God in the cool of the day. And this is, in, this is a lot of times in worship why I love whenever things kind of come down and, we're, and it's really uncomfortable because we want to start striving and say, I think we need to throw in some words here and start singing here. And, and, and it's like, no, like, just rest. Rest is, in my opinion, the purest form of worship is when you can sit back and say, God, I don't know how this is gonna end. I don't know where I'm going, but what I do know is you've got me in your hands. It's, it's childlike faith, what Ellington talks about all the time. It's childlike faith. Saying, like, like with Veda, I, I don't have a daughter, so I can't use a daughter example, but with Veda, she doesn't have to worry whether Josh or Jordan are gonna provide. She's like, let's go. I'm down, let's go. And that's our relationship with God. It can be that simple. And it is that simple. The moment we begin to make it complicated by adding all these extra things is when everything falls apart. But it's simple. Rest, sit back, rest, and watch God do what God does. And that's it. So if everyone can, can bow their heads for a moment, I wanna leave plenty of time for us to, to, to uh, pray here. Before I ask any other questions, I, I first want to ask, and I never want to end a sermon without asking, if there's anybody in here who, who maybe you have never built your boat, per se, and that you, you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never had a relationship with God, and, and today you, you really feel like the Lord is, is tugging on your heart. Maybe, maybe you, you heard something that was said, and it's like, I don't know, I don't know why, but I can't stop thinking about that. Um, but let me tell you that, that God loved you so much it's a simple truth, simple truth. God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die a gruesome death so that you yourself could be made perfect in his eyes, that all you do is believe in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. Qualitative, not quantitative. Well, and quantitative, but not just quantitative. You can believe in God and your life to this day 
starting now, from now until forevermore, will be in the hands of God who knows what he's doing and you can begin to rest. If that's you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you wouldn't mind slipping your hand up between me, you, and God, Next question. Um, if you're in here today and maybe you have been trying to build your boat yourself, you, you, you've heard the command from God and you've tried assembling this boat yourself and, and you know what God has told you, but you think that you have some things that you would rather have instead of what God says and you end up building this boat and now that storms come, your boat's starting to crash and crumble. Or maybe the storms haven't come yet, but you look at your boat and you're like, yeah, this ain't gonna make it. If that's you, would you mind slipping your hand up? Yeah. Maybe you're in here today and you haven't, maybe you had a boat at one time that was, that was sailing across the seas of your floodwaters and something happened in your life that was, that was difficult. Maybe the floodwaters put a hole in your boat because there was one part of that boat that, that just wasn't firmly secure and now you're beginning to see your boat sink and you feel like you know what, this, I, I, I gotta do something like you, you feel like you have no other options if that's you, would you mind slipping up your hand as well Jesus, thank you so much for, for what you've done thank you Lord that you have given us such a simple, simple commission to rest, be fruitful and multiply, not by our own hands, but by simply creating other image bearers who rest. I thank you, Jesus, that you have given us the ultimate gift, the best gift that we could possibly imagine, and that's yourself. And Lord, I ask in this moment that those who who may have have built this boat themselves and have tried to do everything themselves, I ask, Lord, that for one, that you shatter that boat. But not just shatter the boat, but show them what a true boat should look like. One that's gonna test, that's gonna stand the test of time. One that's gonna make it into the end. And one that's eternal. God, a lot of us, a lot of us suffered over this last year but I truly believe that what we went through was, was not something that was just, you know, we went through it and, and that's it. I believe, Lord, that just like you did for Noah, you are going to give us everything because we have endured, because we have made it to the end, because we have allowed you to be at the center of everything, because we have chosen to rest. The reward is everything. So I, I, I wanna take a moment now and just have Josh playing for a little bit. And, and I think all of us can say at, at some, some point of our life, some part of ourselves, we, we try to do things ourselves, and, and we don't want God to have the entire boat. And so for the next few moments, I just want us to sit and allow God to speak into us and, and to truly call out to God and trust that he is going to destroy the things that we built ourselves and replace it with what he is establishing in us. So I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna put the mic down and we're just gonna take the next two or three minutes and just sit in this and let the Lord establish his covenant in you.
God, you're so good. I pray, Lord, I, I truly believe, even if it's one person, Lord, I, I feel like there is someone in here that is, it's, you are wrecking them with this truth. That it's not about what you do, but it's about resting in you and letting you do the work. There is freedom when we take our hands off of it. There's freedom when we release from our hands our own works. This is, this is the story of the Bible that we trust in you, that we trust your story, and that if we trust your story, everything that you want for us in life is going to come. Your word said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added. So I pray that that be the posture of our hearts, that we seek you first that our secret place consists of rest, that our work life consists of rest, that our family life consists of rest, that every action of every day be consistent with rest, that even when we work, we rest, because we know that you are the one who's putting this together. You are the one who is holding us afloat these flood waters. You, Lord, you are the one that we can trust in because you are infinitely good. You're good even when the floodwaters are here because the floodwaters themselves are good if they're coming from you. You are good and your standard of good is what I am choosing to align align myself with because what I call good may not be as good as what you want, Lord. But Lord, I trust you and I rest in you be with us this week, Lord, and teach us these simple truths of how to rest in you and how to see some of these things in the Bible, the way that they were intended to be read and that your word would become alive in our hearts, that we begin to have a revived childlike faith in you, that we look at every single page with a smile on our face, that when a new truth comes up, we do nothing but just laugh and say, God, thank you. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's life is rest and joy. If there's anybody here today, maybe you have fear in your life to some degree. Maybe it's your fear of the future. Maybe it's your fear of not being what you wanna be for someone else. Maybe like you're afraid of how somebody looks at you. Let me tell you the opposite of trust and rest is fear because fear will cripple trust. It'll cripple it. Lord, if there's anybody here, I feel this so strong. If there's anybody here, Lord, that is is feeling fearful about anything, whether it's the future, whether it's what they're going through right now, maybe it's a family situation. I ask, Lord, that you bring peace, not to the situation itself as much as you do their hearts. Because when our hearts are postured in rest, we no longer ask the storm to go away, but rather we find you in the storm. And we allow the storm to break down the things in our life that need to be broken and then be replaced with what you wanna put in its place. That's, That's what sovereignty is, is Lord, you know the end from the beginning. And you know what we're going through. You know everything. And you know what's best for us. And the moment that we take our hands off and say, okay, God, 
do what you will. I may not like it, but do what you will. That's when we begin to find peace and rest. Lord, I thank you again, and I praise you in Jesus' name. By the way, I want to say this really quick, too, about um, what we're doing on Tuesday nights, because I believe that what we're doing on Tuesday nights is holding each other accountable to this idea of this boat idea. Because some of us come in and we have some things that we're building with paper. But we have people around us, man, like this last Tuesday was so good. It, it made me stronger. And there's times where I'll come in on Tuesday and I'm like carrying something that I'm doing myself and someone will say something and it's like, boom, gone. All right, now let's put, that, let's put God in its place. And so if you're not coming on Tuesday nights, I'm telling you, like, you need to start. Like, it, make the time and do it. If you have to push stuff away, do it because it is so worth it to be surrounded by other people who are strong because we have some strong people here, some strong people. Um, but yeah, anyways, uh, that's going to be it though. Yeah. yeah.